There are some things that God is very dogmatic on, and we should be as well. Yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And most often today to be politically correct is to be biblically corrupt. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we have entered chapter 14, the part of the Apostle Paul's letter that deals with gray areas, those subjects not clearly outlined in Scripture, but from which we can get some direction based on the principles outlined in Scripture regarding similar issues. The one principle that we need to keep at the forefront of our mind is that our behavior ought not cause a brother or a sister in Christ to stumble in their walk with the Lord. And so as we rejoin Dr. Brogy today, he focuses on Romans 14 verses 13 to 21 in a message entitled, The Brotherhood of Believers. One of my great joys as a pastor is to help serve God's people by teaching the Word of God. And it's always a privilege for a pastor to be able to open the scriptures to clarify an issue, to interpret a difficult text or answer some questions people have. But as I told you last time, a born-again Christian has never asked me, is it wrong to commit adultery? Is it wrong to steal? Is it wrong to commit murder? Now, I've had non-Christians tell me that fornication and adultery and homosexuality and drunkenness, that there's nothing wrong with it as long as you love people and you don't hurt anyone. But I've never had a true Christian ask me that. Those issues are self-evident. They are spelled out in the Word of God. There are some things that are clearly right that we are to do. For instance, we are to give thanks in all things. God tells us that we are to guard our speech. It's always right to, in the church service, do everything decently and in order. It's always right to do those things. But then there are some things that are always wrong. It's always wrong to forsake our assembling together as brethren. It's always wrong to speak evil of one another. It's always wrong to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's always wrong to commit adultery or to murder or to steal or to bear false witness. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it because God has plainly spoken. But there are some issues in the middle, so to speak, that are not spelled out in Scripture. Issues that we often term gray areas or doubtful things. Like what kind of entertainment is acceptable? What kind of movie can I watch? What kind of music can I listen to? What things can I or I cannot do on Sunday, the Lord's Day? Some would say, look, the Bible doesn't address them, so you're free to do whatever you want to do. Well, we've been learning that there are many things that the Bible does not specifically address in Scripture. It doesn't address every single issue that you will face in this life, but God gives us principles on how to face those issues. And if you run your decision through the principles that God gives, then what may seem gray can become very black or right, because remember, everything you do ultimately is either right or wrong. And so in the final declaration, there is no gray, but how do we discern these gray areas and how do we find out what God says and apply those principles? Well, our passage is helping us to do that. And it's important as we disciple our children or our grandchildren or the people that we work with or our neighbors that we just don't simply give them rules, but we guide them through the principles of God's Word. 
Let's begin reading where we left off last time, Romans chapter 14. Follow along in your Bible, beginning now in verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now last time we learned that there are some principles that must be understood if we are to live a balanced Christian life and mature in the Lord. We need to know how to understand some of the gray areas. Some Christians on these issues that are not specifically addressed in the Bible retract into a shell and they create a list of do's and don'ts of things that you or they should do or not do, and very often they move into the realm of legalism. Still, other Christians are tempted to rationalize their sin, and they say, I want to experience life, I want to do such and such, and their freedom in Christ turns into license. And I would say in the last 25 to 30 years, the evangelical church in America has radically changed And if anything, we're no longer guilty of legalism, we're guilty of license. There's a movement in our nation within evangelicalism that affirms what they call incarnational theology. And what they mean by that is that under that banner, if we are to reach the world for Christ, then we need to become like the culture. We need to be cool like them. And so for some, that might be, for instance, drinking a frosty cold beer. One church in Birmingham, Alabama has the sign, Beer, Hot Wings, and Jesus. Here's a picture from the Eastside Christian Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, highlighting Bear in Hymn Night. Here's a sidewalk church in New York City. It says, Beers and Hymns Tonight at 6 p.m. free. Here's a picture of a church in Seattle, Washington, That's the music minister. To sing, you have to have had at least three beers. It's called Church in the Pub. And they want to reach the people in their community, and they believe that's the way you should do it. There's actually a church in Seattle, Washington, that's called Beer Church. That's the name of it. And their vision statement is, Beer Drinkers United for the Benefit of Mankind. For other churches, their incarnational theology might be smoking a cigar or gambling or using profane language, yes, even in the pulpit, and preaching explicitly sexual behavior. Many pastors are now doing that. 
And that's why I say if evangelicalism is guilty of anything, it's no longer so much legalism as it is license. But again, God has not called us to legalism. He's not called us to license. He's called us to balance in the Christian life. We're to avoid legalism like the plague to give people simply a set of rules and regulations, but we're also to avoid license, which ruins our testimony. We're to avoid both extremes, and it's only as we understand the principles of Scripture that we can walk in balance. The Bible is not simply a book of minute laws. It is a book of great principle. It's not just a rule book. It's a guidebook. The social order is forever changing, and the way sins can be expressed is forever changing. But the Word of God never changes. Now, if you were not here last time, let me set the context of our passage. In the first 12 verses, Paul is giving us instructions on how to guard our actions and how to guard our attitudes. And of course, he's dealing with issues that the first century church faced. But those issues, though we may not face them, the principles are timeless that we can put into the situations in which we find. And so he gives us some timeless principles and he gives us some great motivation. First, if we're to guard our action and our attitude, we need to remember the Lordship of Christ. Look again in verses 7 and 8. There he wrote, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Paul's reminding them, look, you're not your own. You have been bought with a price. Understand the implications of this verse. It's not up to me to say whom I am going to marry. It's not up to me to say where am I going to work. It's not up to me what kind of movie am I going to watch. What kind of drink am I going to drink. Because I'm not my own. Now contextually, he's reminding us that we cannot say it really doesn't matter what my fellow Christian brother thinks because I'm not my own. Verse 7, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. I'm not to live for myself. I'm to live for the glory of God. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. We live under the Lordship of Christ. The Lord Jesus did not shed his precious blood so you could serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. He emphatically says here in verse 9, for to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both, uh, uh, both of the dead and of the living. See, here's the problem, as many of us have already made up our minds as to what we're going to do. Some of you think, no one's going to tell me whether I can drink a beer. No one is going to tell me whether I can do such and such. And you're right, nobody can. But God can, and he has, and the question becomes, if he has spoken, what are you going to do? See, if you're willing to put yourself under the lordship of Christ, there will be some things that will fall out of your life, and there will be other things that will come into your life. You don't need any legalists to tell you what to do or not to do, because God's going to teach you himself from the word of God. And so first he tells us you to guard your attitude, your actions because of the lordship of Christ. But then he gave us a second motivation and it concerns the judgment seat of Christ. First he asked the weak questions, if, you, if they're weak Christians, remember a question in verse 10, but you, why do you judge your brother? And then he turns, if you remember, to the strong Christians and he asks, or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? 
He's asking both groups, why are you taking the role of judge? Because he says we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And to back that up, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, the 45th chapter. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Now remember, the whole chapter is dealing with Christians, weak and strong, but both of whom are trying to love the Lord and trying to please him. We're dealing with gray areas. He's talking about judging one another, not in relation to clear doctrinal issues, not in relationship to clear moral issues, but in issues that are not clearly spelled out in Scripture. And there's a difference, as we examined last time, between biblical judging and being judgmental. There's a vast difference between being a critical thinker and being everyone's critic. And so Paul says, stop being judgmental and critical towards each other in gray matters. Why should I stop, Paul? Because we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. He is speaking of something that is very, very serious. And I hope that that truth that we studied in depth last time has been sealed in your mind, that it's reverberating in your soul, that it's deep down in your heart, that there is coming a day when God will say, this is your life. Now remember, this is not the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, of which only unbelievers are present and of which all are eternally condemned. This is the judgment seat of Christ in which your service for the Lord Jesus is examined. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not a judgment dealing with sin. It's a judgment dealing with service. We studied in Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which is why Jesus could say, he who believes in me is not judged, not condemned. This is not a judgment for sin. It's a judgment for service. If you've received Jesus Christ and all of your sin has been judged in a substitute who bore all of its wrath in our place. Now, having set that context, having given us those two positive motivations, he gives us a third motivation, which I'm turning, terming the brotherhood of believers. And other, under that umbrella, the Brotherhood of Believers, which you can see there in your note-taking outline is the title of this morning's message, he gives four negative commands. And I want you to write them down and to go home and think about them. Number one, Roman number one there on your outline, the Bible teaches that I am not to be a stumbling block. If I am going to treat my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ properly, number one, I am not to be a stumbling block. Look now at verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. Now stop right there for a moment because this scripture needs to be qualified with other scripture. There's obviously a time for Christians to judge. The same one who said, judge not lest you be judged, also said in John 7, 24, do not judge according to, to appearance, but he said, judge with righteous judgment. There are several judgments that God has called Christians to make in the Word of God. Let me highlight at least four in your thinking this morning. Number one, we are to judge erring brothers. We're to judge an unrepentant brother. Some sin that is of a public nature, that is known in the church, 
is to be brought under church discipline. There are some sins that are quiet, that are private. They're not brought before the church, but there are some sins that are public in nature, and you are to deal with them. A Baptist church in Virginia just last week fired one of its employees, a woman, for living with her fiancé, to whom, of course, she has not yet made the marriage covenant, and now she is pregnant by him. Now understand, this is a good church, It's a church like ours where we receive single moms, we receive unrepentant, unwed mothers, and we try to help them and encourage them. This was a woman who is engaged, has no marriage date with her fiancé, maybe in a couple of years. They're living together. She's now pregnant, and because she was a member and an employee, she was fired. And now all over the Virginia news, they're calling that church judgmental. And the woman, and I quote, said, the only one who can judge me is God himself. Well, she's absolutely right. Only God can judge her, but she must also understand that God has already judged that sin. God calls that adultery. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul rebuked the church at Corinth for not dealing with a similar sin. Let me read it to you. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, the pagans, that someone has his father's wife. Even the pagans find it obnoxious for a man to sleep with his stepmother, Paul says. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, Then notice what he says. I, he says, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. Now, I find it interesting that the Apostle Paul does not commend them for being tolerant. He rebukes them for being arrogant. The Corinthians thought that somehow they knew better and that tolerance was a good thing. And yet Paul wants them to know that there are some sins that are to be judged in the church. And there are many things that today evangelicalism is calling tolerance that God is calling sheer arrogance and disobedience. So number one, first, we are to judge unrepentant church members. Secondly, the Bible also tells us that we are to judge false teachers and false doctrine. And again, more and more in evangelicalism, People don't want to preach the Word of God. They don't want to sound too harsh or too divisive. Years ago, I went to a conference in a stadium in Columbia, South Carolina, and the MC stood up and he said, doctrine only divides. We don't want to be divisive. And so Christians today are saying, let's just lay aside our doctrinal differences, unite with one another and love one another, and don't be dogmatic. There are some things that God is very dogmatic on, and we should be as well. Yes, doctrine does divide. It divides truth from error. And most often today, to be politically correct is to be biblically corrupt. When we come to chapter 16, Paul will say in the 17th verse, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned, and turn away from them. In 1 John 4, the apostles said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. 
Jesus warned in the Sermon on the Mount, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. In his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, he said, examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good in the realm of doctrine is the context. From these passages, the Bible is crystal clear that we are to discern truth from error, true teachers from false teachers. And the only way in the words of Paul here in our text that we can hold on to that which is good is to know what the Scripture says and to be grounded in the Scriptures. And today, if you take some position against a false teacher, they'll tell you you're either A, jealous of his ministry, or being judgmental. This week, the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention called Perry Noble, the pastor of the New Spring Church, the largest church in the state of South Carolina, on the mat. He condemned Perry Noble for his pulpit profanity, for his sloppy exegesis and preaching, for his regular use, not just of non-Christian music, but anti-Christian music like Highway to Hell, in his denial of the infallible, inerrant, timeless Word of God by rewriting the Ten Commandments. And he apologized initially and came back last week and said, I'm making no apology. And now people are calling President Kelly judgmental for calling a church out on the mat. We're to judge Aaron brothers. The Bible teaches we are to judge false teaching. But the Scripture also says, as we studied Wednesday night, we're to judge ourselves. When we come to the Lord's table, Paul said, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks... Uh, judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, because you did not judge yourself rightly, for this reason, many of you are weak, some are sick, and some have died sooner than God wanted you to. You're asleep. But he said, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. So we come to the Lord's table. We are to judge sin in our life when we hold the very elements that represent the fact that we've been redeemed with precious blood that were not our own. You do not take in those elements symbolic of what Jesus did, harboring sin in your heart. And I suppose in the broadest sense, 1 Corinthians 2.15 says, he who is spiritual judges all things. And that really covers the gambit. So let's put this text in its context. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. It needs to be understood in the context. Again, he's not talking about, in this context, judging unrepentant sin. He's not talking in this context of judging doctrinal error. In this context, he's talking about issues that are not spelled out in Scripture. He's saying, in essence, stop being critical and judgmental towards one another in these gray matters. Let's read the verse again. Therefore, let us not judge, the Greek word there is krino, one another anymore, but rather determine or krino this. It's a play on words in the original, as you can see on the slide. It's the same Greek word used twice in the text. A little awkward if you translate it literally, a little wooden, but literally it says, let us not judge one another anymore, but be careful to judge this. In fact, that's the way the King James puts it. 
Let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather. He's playing off the nuance of the word. In essence, he's saying, don't judge one another, but rather judge yourself. Take a very honest and hard look at yourself, especially as it relates to these gray areas. You see, we tend to be harder on others than we are on ourselves. We say, well, he's grouchy, but when it comes to us, well, I'm just tired. See, that's our tendency. And Paul wants us to judge ourselves in these gray areas and in a particular way. Notice, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine or judge this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Please notice he uses two different words to denote two different actions. First, he says not to put an obstacle in a brother's way, and then he says not to put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, let's consider the first word, obstacle. It's a Greek word that means to bump or to trip up. It can refer to an occasional tripping up of something, something that's unintentional, that's unplanned. When my grandkids were here, I got up during the night and I stepped on a toy and my foot, oh, that hurt. They didn't leave it there to hurt my foot. It was unintentional. That's the thought behind the first word, obstacle. The second word, translated here, stumbling block, speaks of a more serious offense. It's the Greek word, uh, skandalion. We get our word directly in English, scandal. And so while an obstacle is an innocent hindrance of sort that we need to judge so we don't commit it, a stumbling block is more serious. It's an intentional injury. In fact, the word that is used here was used for the trigger on a trap. If you put a piece of cheese in a mouse trap and the mouse is caught, the trigger is the cheese that sprang the trap. And one is worse than the other. It's not talking about just a stubbing of a toe here. He's talking here of an intentional tripping up of a brother, an intentional hurt. In either case, he's saying, don't innocently hinder your brother's faith. And don't intentionally hinder your brother's faith. And so he's reminding us of the kind of judging that we are to do. Let me see if I can illustrate. A missionary friend serves in a foreign country that is largely Roman Catholic. And in that particular country, once a year at Christmas time, people will bring their manger pieces, their figurines to the church to have the priest bless them and throw holy water on them. How many of you had a manger? I did last year. How many of you had a manger scene? Yeah, hundreds of you. Well, they do that in this country, but they do not put their manger scene out in their businesses or in their homes until the priest blesses them and puts holy water. And sometimes they wait in line for hours, and in some churches they have to pay to have it done. But once it is done, they lay them out, and they think that blessing comes upon their home, and they even pray idolatry, idolatrously to the figurines. And so this one brother came into his house who had been saved out of that background. And Christians, when they find the Lord, they, they find that action repulsive, and They came into this missionary's house and they saw his figurines and they said, how could you I? How could you do that? How could you have this manger see now? Because he had been saved out of that kind of background where there was idolatry associated with the putting out of a manger. Now, he wasn't idolatrous in the least bit. He didn't even know it was an offense. But he understood that it could be an unintentional obstacle in that country if he is going to win people to Jesus Christ. Sometimes there is a freedom in Christ to do something 
But out of our love for our brother or sister in Christ, we abstain so as not to cause them to stumble. To listen to this or any of the messages in the Roman series, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request the Brotherhood of Believers, program ROM67, available on CD or DVD. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll continue our look at the Brotherhood of Believers as we search the Scriptures. <music> 